0: Hello, I'm Rod Levy.
1: I'm a partner in the M&A group at Herbert Smith Freehills. Hi Rod, I'm Cam Jamshidi. I'm a senior associate in the M&A group at HSF. Great, hi
0: Cam. Now today, I thought we'd um, talk about uh, pre-bid shareholder commitments. It's it's an interesting topic and it comes up in quite a lot of takeovers.
1: That's right, Rod, and um, what's particularly interesting is the range of approaches that are taken in respect of these pre-bid support arrangements.
0: That's right. There's, In fact, there's a huge range of different things you come across um, in takeovers and schemes for that matter. But today, I think we should just talk about the, the most common forms uh, of agreements. Now, we're not talking about someone buying shares firm, because you could buy up to 20% firm, but people tend not to do that they tend to want to get a commitment
1: and some comfort that their bid will be successful, and they want to do that in a different way. Of course, Rod, um, bidders are keen to get that support to ensure that there's some momentum when they go out to market with their announcement. Um, Conversely, shareholders are keen to give the support in order to allow them to access the premium um, that's on offer from the bidder. That's right. So there's an interesting tension when these discussions take place,
0: which are done, of course, confidentially, before there's any announcement. Now, there are two forms that, uh, we've, that we see commonly uh, in takeovers. The first one is a formal agreement where a shareholder commits to accept a takeover bid. And the second one is less formal. Uh, it's where a, a, a shareholder consents to a public statement being made on its behalf whereby usually they'd say that they uh, intend to accept the bid in the absence of a superior proposal.
1: And of course, Rod, um, the regulators are focused on this area. They want to ensure that uh, substantial shareholders are not locked up prior to a bid in a way that would prevent competition um, for for the target emerging. Um, ASIC in particular has been quite vocal in this area, particularly around the shareholder intention statements. I think the core concern that ASIC is worried about is the arrangements between bidder and shareholder giving rise to a relevant agreement um, and, and resulting in the bidder having a relevant interest in a stake that potentially breaches Section 606 uh, and goes above 20%. Yeah, that's right. So so ASIC, ASIC, it's
0: interesting here because ASIC have issued a number of regulatory guides about takeovers, but in fact... This policy position is not in their regulatory guide, and to find it, you have to look in the submissions they made to the takeovers panel um, in
1: 2015, when the panel was uh, considering shareholder intention statements. Yeah, and and I've read that uh, submission, Rod, and I must say, ASIC's views um, are are, are quite strict in in the way they've interpreted the, the legislation. The panel, I think, uh, where they ended up in their guidance note 23 on shareholder intention statements, I I thought they took quite a reasonable approach in terms of um, how, in particular, shareholder intention statements could be drafted in a manner that provided the support necessary for a bidder to submit their bid, uh, while still allowing enough room for for rival bidders to emerge um, and increase the potential value on offer for, for shareholders
0: yeah well i, I mean, I've thought about this and i I think you know the ASic ASic's got a particular role in takeovers different from the panel's role. ASic is there to enforce the law and and you know take a position and take a a view about arrangements and test whether or not they breach the law the law Now the panel's role is not to enforce the law the panel's role is essentially to enforce the spirit of the law, but primarily it's to make sure that takeovers occur in an efficient, competitive, and informed market. That's the statutory expression in Section 602. And so when it comes to shareholder intention statements, um, the panel's policy has generally been that, provided that the uh, shareholder commitment doesn't prevent an auction occurring... Panel will be happy with it, and that's really the position they've put out in guidance note 23.
1: Yeah, it certainly comes through in the guidance note, uh, Rod. Interestingly, ASIC and its submission, uh, the core concern seemed to be they didn't want bidders using these shareholder intention statements in circumstances uh, really to get around the restrictions on pre bid arrangements, that is, where an intention statement uh, was a and effectively, a commitment for for more than twenty percent uh, of the shares in the target. Um, so, so that tension is quite interesting. Now, and can I just just make this a little observation there? It's um, you know they
0: talk about you know the agreement you have when you're not having an agreement. Right. Sort of like it's like a Clayton's agreement. Um, some of our listeners might remember the infamous ad with Jack Thompson, where he had a Clayton's drink, the drink he had when he wasn't having a drink. Uh, and so, you know, and that's sort, of, that's sort of an expression that's been very popular amongst lawyers, maybe the older lawyers, um, <laughs> well, and, uh, you know, maybe it, it
1: applies here. Well, maybe you just started something here, Rod, the Clayton's intention statements. <laughs> right. Let's see.
0: I like the sound of that. Okay, so, um, so anyway, in short, I think that anyone who is, who is thinking about doing a, a shareholder intention statement uh, or a formal agreement needs to pay very close attention to the policy of the of the law, and uh, sorry, I should say, pay very close attention to ASIC's attitude. Otherwise, you'll find yourself in hot water with ASIC.
1: Yeah, and we'll come to it, Rod. But there were a few instances um, that we're aware of where ASIC has sort of stepped in and um, and altered the conduct of parties uh, for for this particular issue. Yeah. So should we start the Integral example. This is the deal you worked on, acting for the target, Rod. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want me to run through it? That'd be useful.
0: Okay. So, the integral integral um, integral was the target company, uh, and they received a bid from Capital Health in late 2017, and Capital Health had lined up formal commitments from four shareholders. Whereby they committed to accept the bid uh, for uh, a, a number of shares, which was, I think from memory, roughly 16 uh, or 18%. was slightly vague because one of the, some of the shares were under a derivative at the time. But anyway, so they had these agreements, um, formal agreements. Now, the, the thing that, there was nothing illegal about it because they were under 20%, mm-hmm. but the thing that I found very interesting was that the agreements were very, very bidder friendly. Um, that, you know, in this this bearing in mind in, in this in this transaction, capital was trying to acquire integral, which was a bigger company. And it was a, essentially a script transaction. And yet and the shareholders had committed to that. Uh, yet they had given the bidder the ability to change the terms of the bid and to drop the conditions uh, without the shareholder having any say in that or being able to withdraw their commitment to accept, and that to me seemed to you know could have given rise to a situation where where the transaction uh, didn't deliver the benefits that was promised, but if, you know for example, if the if the bid had gone unconditional and the bidder had simply just acquired less than twenty percent or less than thirty percent even.
1: Uh, it wouldn't have had the same outcome. It's interesting, isn't it? In in that example, um, achieving 100% is critically important to the outcome. And I think what you're saying, Rod, is these shareholders have signed up to a pre-bid acceptance arrangement um, that potentially could have allowed the bidder to release the minimum acceptance condition and potentially end up with less than 100%, which, which significantly changes all the underlying drivers for, for the acquisition.
0: Yeah. Now, of course, I have no idea what went on between the bidder and the shareholders, but reading these agreements, it just seemed to me it, it left the shareholders open. But, you know, there's a range of attitudes to these commitments in the market. It depends a bit on the sophistication of the shareholder, and how keen they are for the bid to actually occur.
1: Yeah, the sense I get, Rod, is um, in their haste to secure the premium, uh, shareholders at times uh, don't spend the time really analysing the arrangements that are put in front of them, often often by the bidder, often drafted by the bidder. Um, and so one sort of market point would be just really focusing in on the terms and, and the termination rights and, and what the bidder can do, um, which your experience certainly shows. Yeah, so anyway, so so that was the integral
0: example. Um, what what's other example do you want to talk about? Which
1: one? So I wanted to talk about, I saw the Godfrey situation. Now, we're not acting um, for either party, I don't believe. Um, that was interesting because the bidder arcade finance, which uh, is, is controlled by a 99-year-old founder of, of Godfrey, which has gotten a lot of press, um, quite interestingly, um, the, the bidder launched a takeover bid at $0.32 cents a share, I'm not sure if they had a pre bid acceptance arrangement. I don't think they did, and I don't think they had a pre bid stake or it wasn't particularly large, um, as I understand. So the takeover bid is launched, the offer starts, um, they gain acceptances up around the 35% mark. At that point, certain shareholders representing, I think, about 19% of the register put out basically put a letter in front of the bidder and say, if we can get a price increase, removal of the minimum acceptance condition and acceleration of the payment terms, we will accept into the takeover bid. Um, And that was announced on the ASX. And sure enough, three days, or or I think the next business day, in fact, the bidder increases its bid to 35 cents. um, Sorry, 33 and a half cents. And uh, eventually those shareholders accept into the bid.
0: Yeah, so, so they so the, so the shareholder seemed to initiate that, and the bidder then matched it, and the deal was done.
1: Yeah, that's right. And and it's interestingly, it's interesting. Uh, there was an example back in twenty sixteen, um, Unity Mining, where similar circumstances, albeit I think it was in a scheme context. Rod, um, the bidder had thirteen odd percent, uh, a major shareholder representing eighteen percent. Uh, put out a similar letter, intention statement, that if the bid was increased, they would vote in favour of the scheme. Sure enough, a day or two later, the bidder increases the consideration. Um, ASIC in that situation intervened yeah. and, in fact, said uh, they would tag the votes, they would see what the outcome of the, of the scheme meeting would be, and if it looked like the scheme wouldn't have passed um, if those votes were excluded then it would apply to the court to, um, to set aside those votes. It seems a pretty, um, pretty tough view from ASIC. It is a very tough view. Um, and this is something that ASIC in their corporate finance report um, have brought to the market's attention on multiple occasions. They're concerned with uh, really a bidder and a major shareholder forming a relevant agreement, even where they use the target as a, con- uh, a conduit to, to form that agreement. But I I just, the sense I get with the Godfrey example is uh, ASIC hasn't intervened. It looks like those acceptances have gone through. Um, The takeover bid was live and maybe that's, uh, the offer had been open for some period. So maybe that, that gave ASIC some comfort. Um, But it it didn't look interesting in, in the sense that given the unity example, ASIC's decision not to intervene uh, in the Godfrey's case, um, This sort of creates a little bit of doubt as to what the position on these on these intention mm. statements are.
0: Yeah, so well, well, it's um, it's certainly it's a very interesting part of of takeover practice. These little agreements, uh, they're vital to getting a transaction done or not done. And of course, the other thing we've seen in the market is rejection statements you know, from being used by a target, which raise similar but not identical issues. So let's just wrap it up then. So what are we saying? What are the key messages you think our listeners should get from this?
1: I think for me, Rod, the key messages are, uh, one, these shareholder intention statements are really powerful tools, but where they potentially give rise to a relevant interest above 20%, bidders need to be really, really careful um, in you know, w- w- what they really say, what the intention statements say. And the other point I'd make is shareholders providing, whether a statement or pre-bid um, agreement, acceptance or otherwise, they just need to be very careful around the terms they're signing up to, um, in particular, sort of the rights of the bidder and, and termination rights that may apply.
0: Yeah, I think they're right. I think that they are the key points. Well, it's been an interesting little chat, Cam.
1: Thanks for um, participating today. Pleasure, Rod. Now, you did a carve-out last time uh, with Toby Eggleston. I did. Uh, I was going to tell you about all the interesting uh, things that are on my plate at the moment. Well, tell me
0: this. Well, Cam, seeing you've brought it up, then what is it? On your plate.
1: Yeah, so I'm reading a very interesting book by uh, Ray Dalio of uh, Bridgewater Associates. Uh, he, he, he talks about principles on life, Rod. Principles life, on life. Life and work. Um, yes. And uh, like I think most hedge funds, uh, provides a great deal of analysis, almost too much to absorb. But uh, it's So a it's very- a hedge fund guy talking about life. Work-life balance sort of issues, is it? Well, he doesn't talk about balance. He talks about work a great deal. Um, uh, Interestingly, he set up this hedge fund, Bridgewater Associates. Him and a mate set it up uh, in, I think, uh, in their apartment and ran that for many, many years. I I think it is one of the most successful funds uh, internationally.
0: Well, I'll have to get the hold of the
1: book. Absolutely. I'll lend you my copy.
0: Good on you. Okay. All right. Thanks. Thanks for
1: that. Thank you.